like on Tuesday, I have an opportunity to prepare a little bit um, for the remarks I want to provide on Wednesdays. Just FYI, it is um, our staff helping compile this, so I'm trying to digest what's in front of me. Uh, let me just start with uh, those of you who were at the reception last night. We had a couple of creative drink specials around the fifth anniversary of the SEC Network, which occurs on August 14th. There are a few things happening. In fact, I saw for the first time uh, refreshing the logos across the network. We'll have studio renovations that will appear uh, this summer before we go to next, uh, into next academic year. Uh, we also have uh, something heading into the fall I think will really be special. It's called Saturdays in the South. It is uh, an eight-part, really 12-total-hour documentary on the history of SEC football. And I've seen, I think, six of the eight episodes and previews began in 1880 with uh, not a lot of HD footage from 1880. Uh, the first episode, I think, goes from 1880 to 1928 before the SEC was formed and just talks about football. Uh, you're in the post-Civil War integration uh, era, um, issues around segregation uh, that play out, obviously, through the years, uh, integration, the rise of the Southeastern Conference nationally. Just It's actually a fascinating documentary if you're a fan of college football. It's part of our effort to participate in the 150th anniversary of college football. So that's just some of the network information. Uh, today, we talked about proposed NCAA and SEC legislation that uh, is on our, our agenda. Uh, there's not a, a lot relative to some years that um, you've seen to be terribly uh, newsworthy, perhaps. We have Kevin Lennon, the vice president from NCAA Division I Governance in to talk with our combined group of athletics directors, faculty representatives, senior women administrators about um, any number of issues, the federal and state uh, legislative working group, uh, academic misconduct working group, and the presidential forum reviewing those issues. Uh, transfer issues were talked about in every meeting uh, of our coaches and in that meeting as well. We had some conversation about uh, that, that issue last or yesterday in our last press conference. Our football coaches specifically uh, met for about an hour and a half with eight of our referees, opening a dialogue about how they officiate, how they coach, how we can work more effectively together. Uh, we will be implementing uh, preseason clinics where our officiating crews will travel to our campuses in August. Uh, this is a new initiative. Uh, continuing to provide instruction about new rules, about how the game is officiated, provides uh, the opportunity to you know, start our officiating process a bit earlier. Uh, we meet with uh, our officials for a three-day clinic in July. That will continue, but have added this, this next step in August that will actually be, the, be occurring on each of our 14 campuses. And men's basketball, we talked about transfer issues. Um, uh, looking at the expanded use of instant replay in late game situations, we are the one conference experimenting with collaborative replay uh, during conference play. We think that's been a successful experiment, but are in constant conversation about how we continue to improve that process. Um, we also had a, a long conversation about how we as a conference office can help develop and provide a developmental opportunity for assistant coaches who want to progress into the head coaching role. Um, and that's a new initiative for conversation. Uh, I don't have an itinerary, a curriculum, when that may happen, but it's something that I think our athletics directors are interested in supporting. 
uh, our women's basketball coaches talked about some scheduling issues, both around television, uh, non-conference scheduling, and how we continue to remain strong as a women's basketball conference. You've seen CBS announcements today. Tomorrow our presidents and chancellors gather for the first time, and you have Steve Shaw here at 4.30 for uh, a view from his perspective. So, there's my introductory remarks. Transfer issues, specifics on that, discussed today with football coaches. Much like the conversation, I think, that, that was initiated in the room, um, my impressions um, about what's happening around transfer issues, and then some real-world discussion about uh, what's happening to them. So the topics were the portal. Um, and uh, the discussions around waivers, I think that became more of a top of the agenda item. Um, so I think I identified yesterday my concerns that we have young people going into the transfer portal who are under the impression perhaps there's a waiver on the other side and are making decisions, and that may not be the case. So we talked through that circumstance. We also talked about last year's change around the four game opportunity to play without using a season of eligibility and in what late September when we hit that four game mark uh, maybe some changes and some student athletes who said you know I'm, I'm going to transfer I want to save my year of eligibility what that means practically and how, how, how do they deal with that how do they communicate differently so those are probably the two issues that that waiver piece um, in the four game combo that uh, uh, that rose to be the most extensive part of the conversation. Could you could you see a time when a player could know before putting his name in the portal if he does have, have a waiver before making that decision? Because it, it's almost like, it seems like that's a point of no return with some of the actions schools can take and obviously if they decide to stay, how that might affect a continuing relationship. Yeah, I don't think the, the discussion really centered on knowing about a waiver. That may be um, some thinking, it is a person knowing their status before they go into the portal. So it's not exactly waiver related, but it is that kind of consistency um, leveling the decision making process that I observed yesterday. So that the conversation would be more straightforward with an understanding of you'll have a year of residence or you won't have a year of residence. What were some of the coaches' biggest concerns as far as, you know, was it just fact that they go into the, the portal or the coaches don't know about it when they do? What were some of their biggest concerns in your eyes? It's been a long day and that was my um, 8 a.m. meeting. And I want to make sure that I don't, I had three coaches meetings, uh, athletics directors and my own thoughts. My recollection was more of the focus on um, student athletes, young people understanding their status as they enter this process. Uh, that's not about the portal. That's why I'm trying to be specific. Um, so they make informed decisions, one. And then, then two, the discussion was about uh, the unintended outcome or unexpected outcome of your four games into the season and this discussion about, hey, do I want to transfer and play anymore, use the season of eligibility. Those were really the, the two focus points, I think, from that conversation. Not directly portal related, though. More from their perspective, roster management and how do they, I mean, were there tangible ideas that, that coaches came up with of ways that to 
results of these? Well, they did talk about we are in a, a new circumstance relative to movement on a roster, and that then goes back to initial counter numbers. Um, and the number 25 was established at a time when the transfer frequency was lower, point one than point two. The declarations in pursuit of the NFL draft after the third year were lower because we've seen that, those numbers increase. So I think our coaches appropriately raised the question of how we evaluate the signing limit number. Um, what does that mean for graduate transfers as well? You know, there are some, some roster number issues where the concern, and I think I've seen it in other conferences, is you struggle to get back to 85. And I'll observe if we're not at you know 80 to 85 consistently, then we're not offering opportunities for young people, and, and that goes back to one of the one of the pieces of that is the initial counter structure, and, and that was a topic of conversation that grew out of the transfer dialogue, but not only related to transfers. So it's transfers, the professional declaration, you know, graduate transfers, it's, it's some the fact there's more movement. Greg, is it as simple as saying let's just increase the number of initial counters you can have each year? Our coaches were talking about specific circumstances and then maybe a variation to increase that and, and ask for some thought and review on our part on what might a uh, structure look like in the future. But it was tied back and again I, I, I want to try to describe accurately they weren't focused on signing limits but as they talked through transfers in particular, um, graduate transfers, the fact there's more post-high school movement, is this signing limit, which was really focused on high school movement, knowing that it's attached to junior college as well, is that still the appropriate number, which is a long yes. Yeah. <laughs> but they, I don't know that it's simple. Do they, um, they're seeing... Herb was yawning at that answer, <laughs> so that's why I came back and said that's great. I assume that they're they're just seeing lower numbers. I mean, they, they have lower numbers than, than in previous years because of the movement. I, I don't I don't know that I can answer that, Ross. Um, they talked about yes. I think some are at a lower scholarship number. I don't want to say that's universal. What they did talk through in, in a deep way that if you um, move behind because of player transition, can you move your roster back up to 85? So if you have 60 scholarship players returning um, and you sign 25, well, you're at 85. But you can, um, because of transition, easily fall to 57, 56 people, and you'll, you won't be able to get back to that number. How much is under your, your conference control at all, though, because NCAA... Yeah, that's a national signing policy. But I, you've seen, um, I think, the University of Kansas, which is where observed. Um, their situation through coaching change. Um, and, and I've seen some other, uh, but I don't want to specify, that's the one that I've seen most prominently, that, that the ability to move back up towards that number. And I've seen some schools with, uh, uh, without all this transfer fall below and there have been reports. So I don't want to, I, I can't guess, but I don't think this is a new phenomenon. I, I do think it is expected to be more frequently occurring, though. Is there a concern with those numbers when you have, like, coaching changes where more people look to transfer? And is that an issue with trying to get back up to the 85? Well, it could be, but 
the discussion today was not related to coaching transition. It was just about what's happening around the game, the, the amount of, uh, of uh, movement for whatever reason. Contacting uh, juniors in the spring uh, to avoid the movement <coughs> is something we've heard coaches talk about. Yeah. Uh, how much of discussion would you hear back from them on that? Uh, we really initiated the discussion. And I've gone into that room for 10 years to say, when you look at the evaluation periods and you go into a high school and conversations occur, which I think oftentimes are natural or unavoidable, um, we have this rule that doesn't seem to accommodate that well. Um, and for years, it's been, no, we don't want to do that. And we had a discussion about how might that rule be updated to, to allow some contact. So we, we've seen with early, early signing that the current high school class of seniors is effectively signed. And the notion was people wouldn't recruit in January. Well, they still recruit in January. They go into a high school to evaluate, but it's during a contact period. Is it a junior? Is it a sophomore? Um, I'm one who for years has suggested we ought to update the evaluative period, the evaluation periods, and make those more of a contact opportunity. How that's structured, I think there's some work to be done, so our coaches encourage a fresh look at that part. They don't want to change the recruiting calendar. They think there's been enough done, and in fact are concerned about the 365-day year, year recruiting that exists, but think it's a reasonable adjustment that when someone goes into a high school, they can have uh, a, a conversation that's more than a greeting. That's really normal human interaction. Yeah, <coughs> two years in, maybe to the spring official visits, um, or in the second year of it. What, what feedback from coaches have you heard about about that? Um, in this meeting, just the the observation that the recruiting uh, activity has extended longer. Um, so you got that two week dead period in the summer. Uh, there was a February dead period. But you're in a constant recruiting cycle. So if I go back to uh, probably when I stood here four years ago, or perhaps I was uh, executive associate commissioner at that time, one of the warnings was in football, we had a one-cycle recruiting process. A one-class recruiting cycle is probably the right way to say it. So you'd, you'd, you'd see juniors in the spring. Um, you go through the summer, you go evaluate in the fall, you make contact in December, January, sign in February. Take a breath and go back through the process. What seems to be happening is you're in a multi-class cycle all the time. And that raised the conversation of, hey, it, it doesn't stop now in recruiting. And I think that's becoming a little bit more difficult on coaches than it even was years ago. Nobody's complaining, just is that what we intended when we we altered and created spring spring visits when we created uh, the early signing period and we've, we've created multi-class recruiting in football. To avoid the bump rule with the, the whole thing in the spring, the contact juniors to lift that ban on, on contact with you. What kind of legislative process, a long legislative NCA process, how it is? Uh, it is, and, and uh, we're not sponsoring legislation right now. I think our coaches were really good about discussing what might it look like first, and, and then uh, how can we identify these issues to others and see if it's a concern, and, and some of us partner together to see what the right change might be. That's the, like, without benchmarking the process. Um, it's not going to change for next fall or next January. Do the FARs or anybody or the ADs have any questions about Alston and the ongoing 
definition of what you know benefits tethered to education means and where that starts and stops. Uh, we, we have those conversations with all due respect in an attorney-client privilege setting. <laughs> I mean, Not surprising. Yeah, uh, yeah, I think you can understand. Are there going to be test cases on that, do you think? Or just somebody pushes the envelope just a little bit too far and then we start to learn? On? On, on benefits tethered to education. You know, a kid living off campus may need a car to get to campus. That's tethered to education. Well, we're in an appeal process, so I, I want to be careful about hypothesizing. Right. I mean, that's just reality, Dennis. I'm not, I'm not trying to be disrespectful. Right. I'm trying to be careful. You're right, yeah, but you're right careful. about the appeal. Yeah. Yeah. You guys How excited are the coaches about having to maybe produce injury reports? <laughs> um, we didn't spend a lot of time with the coaches. I, I Not... For an avoidance purpose, we advise them of the conversation. Um, I would say uh, our administrators right now are watching. We're not. We don't think the answer has been provided. So I haven't viewed it as it excited or not excited. My position is um, we don't need to rush to this. If, if our thought is we want to just meet, um, first of all, there's been gambling going on illegal and legal. There's more legalized gambling. Um, but before we just rush down this road, we, we'd better be right in our philosophy as to why and the process. Otherwise, we can make things worse, whatever better or worse is. Here's a random one, Greg. Uh, Mizzou is going to be the first school in the SEC to have an eSports team this fall. Is that something that is at all on your radar or the, the other AD's radar? Not at this time. Why there have been esports competitors on all of our campuses. Um, have we ever had discussions about esports and what the trends are? Certainly, but it's not something that is a part of the Southeastern Conference, much like we've got other clubs and other sporting activities that are not uh, part of our, our sports inventory. Do you see it at some point joining, or is that just too far down the road? Standing here today, I, I don't see that. Standing here five years, who knows? Who knows? You might be talking about replay reviews and Overwatch leagues <laughs> <laughs> or horse racing. Or horse racing. <laughs> How much was the, I, I know that it hasn't really only a few states in the, in the footprint are I've been affected by you know, the uh, sports gambling, but. How much is that even secondary? Is that topic among the, the coaches concerned about you know, kind of the, the challenges that that provide, whether it be an injury report or, or something else? Uh, the existence of sports gambling has been a topic of conversation at, at, at our meetings um, since yeah. we were here last year because we were, what, a week following, I think, or two weeks after the Supreme Court decision. Um, and we have that conversation. It, it doesn't provoke a lot of discussion. It's really fact-based. Here's the status. Here's where the availability report issue may be. I, I've told the coaches what I said, in, uh, and I've told our athletics directors, our presidents and chancellors, what I said at media days last year, that perhaps someday it's out there. Uh, but just what I said in response to Ross, that we, not, we should not be rushing down a road until we understand exactly what we're doing and why and what needs we're trying to meet and how that protects our student-athletes and the integrity of our game. Is the, um, the, the alcohol, stadium alcohol, do you think that that's the most impactful topic at, at 
these SEC spring meetings, and how much discussion was it there? I've heard so much about maybe that being tied to attendance issues. We did not talk about it today. Um, I, I would not rank alcohol sales uh, at the top of my impactful list. I think whether it is or isn't is a circumstance. Um, I, I said yesterday, and I'll say again, I don't think fan attendance is related to beer sales. So if there are trends one way or another, uh, those are related to any number of factors. Uh, kickoff times, opponent, uh, what's going on in other people's lives, societal trends, uh, perhaps the accommodations, the refreshments, the concessions, Wi-Fi, ingress, egress. I mean, there's any number of issues, so I would never boil it down to one element. In that topic, there is, is there still a feeling among, you know, uh, SEC administrators that there's a more high ground when it comes to alcohol sales, that they want to kind of be above it, maybe the family values or whatever the, the excuse may be? I've never engaged in diagnosis. That is a policy that's existed for, I think someone has suggested since 78, wasn't that in yeah. your fine research? So. <laughs> the historian of uh, your predecessor two times. Right, yeah. Between the, the alcohol sales, the, the transfers, which could be equated to some restricted free agency playoffs, it, is there a concern that college football is, is turning into the NFL? I mean, do you take a big picture look at that and, and try and draw the line? And how, and how do you do that? Because Saban said the other day, this is still an entertainment industry, and it lends itself to some of those things that the NFL has. We play football. Right. The NFL plays football. We have first, second, third, fourth down, as do they. Having been to any number of NFL games and many, many more college football games, there is a clear distinction between the two. There aren't many NFL players who are in class on Monday, after a game or Friday before a game. But even within a stadium, that is a very different experience. And big picture, I think college football should continue to remain distinct <coughs> from professional football. Do you envision your football media days moving around like the NFL draft? Uh, I've said, and we'll say again, I envision football media days being in different places. We went to Atlanta uh, last year. We viewed that as a success. We'll be back in Hoover where we will announce there's a reason to attend. It's a tease. Where 2020 will be located, and, and I do expect to move around. When will you announce 2020? The media days. Oh, okay. Well, during your opening address? I think I'm going to do it right at the end. <laughs> you have to have, you must be Perfect present to, to, you must be present to learn. What, what's, the, <laughs> what's the philosophy behind that about moving it as far as, as branding, getting the SEC, I mean, the SEC is the SEC, but why move it around? I guess, what's the thinking behind that? Yeah, I'm going to do some t-shirts, the SEC is the SEC. But, Hey. That's the reality. And the SEC is an 11 state footprint now. And we had a men's basketball tournament that we view as successful in St. Louis. Ten years ago, no one ever would have imagined the SEC playing a, a, a men's basketball tournament in the building where the Stanley Cup finals will be competed for.
Dennis acknowledged that. Yes, that's, um, that was a very progressive movie. Thank you. I, <laughs> visionary, one would say. It was. And so I think that we can bring people in, to my earlier comment, to an event. How that's done remains to be seen. Uh, fans uh, are attracted to Hoover, they're attentive, and I think that can happen in different places, and it should happen in different places and from I, time to time. I think I brought this up at the conference office, the APSC thing. Are you looking for this to be more fan-oriented as the years go by, perhaps? No, the, the primary element is to meet the media needs, to kick off the football season, to communicate about football in the Southeastern Conference. Now, can we do things around that that bring people in? I think. Uh, bringing people into the Southeastern Conference is something that we ought to do. And, and certainly we'll think about that with no prediction on what it might be. In Atlanta, it was an event in Centennial Park where we had 6,000 people walk through uh, a summer fest, I think, fan fest that Regions Bank helped sponsor. Um, we expect to have a, a premiere of our Saturdays in the South around media days. Now, we won't have as big an opportunity, but we can bring some people into that. And I think there are, are some unique ways that we can uh, let fans participate in college football, in SEC football, uh, every July, and perhaps in different different venues, different locations. Any thought about going outside the SEC footprint? I told Paul we were thinking about Amsterdam. <laughs> like Western Europe. Certain use, things are legal there you might not want to do. Well, Oslo. I love Dublin. Um, so I made a list that showed up and everybody reacted. But um, What about College Station, so Georgia Riders? College Station. <laughs> That's a good one. It's like uh, we have a competition in my family line of the day, so I'll give you credit for that. Someday. Someday, Seth. Someday. 2023. Ask the Kentucky folks what it was like last year. The rewards of beer and premium seat. <laughs> but no serious thought into going outside the 11 state footprint. Uh, has that thought ever occurred? Yes. Is it serious thought? That's not the focus. Focus is on that, that footprint right now. Yeah, but you had, you had basketball media days in Charlotte, did you not? We consider that our footprint. You consider that your footprint? We're at the SEC studio. Network studio, so. Oh, that's right. <coughs> we're going to carve out part of North Carolina. And, and we have a pretty significant <coughs> different universities alumni representation there. But, uh, you know, that was part of uh, the ability to produce uh, programming around our uh, basketball. On a different subject, um, are there any new initiatives for mental health for student-athletes? I know some other conferences are doing some symposiums. It's actually a, a, a constantly occurring agenda item with our student-athlete leadership councils, both uh, primarily what's happening on campus. Uh, we have a gathering in late June of all of our leadership councils, and that is one of the agenda items. Is, is there a way for the conference office uh, to help support mental health? Now, I can tell you part of how we support mental health is uh, continuing that dialogue with our uh, with our staffs, even with our coaches, to talk uh, about what's happening around their teams, uh, learning about the counseling opportunities being provided for athletics departments. We approved autonomy legislation on minimum requirements in January, and actually have exceeded uh, on our campuses um, from the feedback those minimum requirements. So it is a, a central topic on each of our campuses, and a regular topic when we meet, particularly with our student athletes. Feedback from um, ADs and coaches on on the sports the first year go around the sports gambling I and mean, just the feedback they got, um, you know, from any, anything tied to that that they saw or the year. 
two things. It's, as I said, a, a constant topic of conversation in our meeting, so we're continually attentive. The second is discussions of what are they doing on campus to educate. It, it's present in Mississippi, so uh, there are two athletics directors, and Ross just is moving to Texas A&M, but have illustrated um, when we went into our meetings, I think in October, what they were doing to help uh, oversee, but also educate their student-athletes on um, really avoiding sports gambling because the NCAA rule expects that um, of our student-athletes, our coaches, our administrators, our commissioners. From the outside of a university, boosters, friends, with, with fans, uh, interacting with players or maybe even sometimes aggressively messaging them about what they did or did not do in a game that maybe cost this booster, this fan, X amount of money. Was there any, any, any of that? No one has identified those circumstances. Here's one. Is there anything uh, that's been discussed uh, at length that hasn't been brought up in this room? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> the way it the back door. There's a, an NCAA academic misconduct working group that has four concepts, one of which is a proposal that would say, even if it doesn't violate any of the rules, you could say, we catch it all. And that's kind of what your question was. We talked about that rule for about 30 seconds, but I thought that was a good, good illustration of one of the academic misconduct issues. How likely is that they can come up with a definition for academic misconduct, an overarching, or more specific, I guess? We have um, we have bylaws right. that describe academic misconduct. We also have circumstance the circumstance where institutions have autonomy over their academic function. That's always been deemed appropriate. I think our conference view is that continues to be appropriate. That means you're going to have tension <coughs> if it's uh, <coughs> excuse me. A relitigation of the North Carolina infractions case. Yeah, I'm not going there. Yeah, yeah. I would refer you back yeah. to the decision. Um, but I think the reality is there's always going to be a little bit of uh, tension between should the NCA have control right. of academic programming? I don't think so. And that means there, there may be rules that are effective. So I can think of a half dozen uh, academic misconduct related infractions cases on which I sat. You probably Google those. So th there are rules that catch that, but do I think we'll all ever have a rule that catches everything? Uh, without this <coughs> just broad statement that we get to decide if we should have an infractions case about conduct, um, I, don't, I don't think so, and I'm not convinced that that's an appropriate adjustment. Yeah, I agree. It starts with the membership even wanting that. Right. Which I guess this is kind of about. Yeah. It, it is. It's obviously an aftermath conversation. Greg, I know you visit all 14 of your uh, campuses. Uh, do you take note of the facilities that, that pop up every time you uh, you visit, and who has the best facilities? <laughs> we have 14 sets of great facilities. Uh, I take note of cranes first when you drive on, because I've always described... Yes. Even before, a good facility? Uh, even before, <laughs> it's a luxury resort. Yes, SEC spring meetings we would move around to, huh? No, no, I think that that would uh, that would alter some things in this life, <laughs> your lives too. Um, you know, even when I was Southland Conference Commissioner, and you'd see 
cranes on campus, that's like a, a sign of life, that there's growth development. And I've noticed that across our campuses, so not just athletics. And you see um, the, the football work at Missouri, the softball stadium that went up in Missouri. Uh, I drove around uh, Texas A&M with R.C. Slocum, and I kitted Jimbo. I said, there's nothing left for the new AD to build. I kitted Ross as well. Um, there's uh, a baseball stadium going up in Florida. Uh, I mean, there, there's just a lot going, which I think is exciting and a sign of growth. So I don't evaluate, you know, good, better, best. I think our schools are really good at doing that among each other. I will say it's an impressive track and field facility in College Station, if you haven't seen that. Some of you will wait seven more years, right? <laughs> you can cover a basketball game, Last question. <laughs> Greg, on, uh, on, uh, as schools are ramping up their non-conference scheduling and looking past the you know, magic 2024 for the TV contracts, playoff contracts, et cetera, are you guiding them along, talking to them, monitoring it, how, or just kind of letting it? We, uh, we brought an analysis of what's happening in scheduling nationally to an athletics director's meeting in January of 2018. And that was both CFP qualifying teams and CFP top 25. That was our focus. And, and part of the messaging for me is if you look, the trend has been towards playing 10 quality FBS games. Uh, now that may be uh, a five games total, so we've got eight. You've seen you know, Georgia moving higher in that number. They'll have 10 this year. Florida will have 10 this year, South Carolina will have 10 this year among A5 opponents. So that's been a point of observation and encouragement and have said, even to coaches, you need to be looking at playing at that, at that number because uh, the full message from the college football playoff selection committee is we're going to look at a team's complete schedule. So interestingly, this discussion about eight or nine games, um, I've smiled as I've said, oh, I, I'd love to have everyone playing eight games. That means we could have more intersectional games, which seems to help the college football playoff selection committee's um, evaluation of teams. Uh, so I will observe, I think, what we've seen really the last six months in this league, the work our athletics directors have put into to scheduling and scheduling some of those higher profile games. I think that's really healthy for college football. It's not a message about television contracts. It's not even a message about some uh, something with the college football playoff other than where we are today. I think to the question about attendance, those types of games help to attract people in. Yep, they attract people to view the game. I think our players are excited about playing those games and our coaches excited about coaching those games. I think that's a good sign um, from our campuses to be committing to that type of schedule.